Please open your Bibles, please, to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. Today I'm wrapping up our mini-series on the Gospel of Isaiah. As we look to God's Word from the New Testament book of 1 Peter. The Hebrew meaning of Isaiah's name surmises his message, or summarizes, I should say, his message. The Lord saves. Can we say that together here this morning? The Lord saves. The prophecy of Isaiah alternates between promises of judgment and restoration, continually reminding us of the magnitude of humanity's sin, of my sin and your sin, the sin of the world, the judgment that we all deserve because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the God who displays his, his glory by saving sinners like me and you. It's an incredible book. I encourage all of us to read through the entirety of the book of Isaiah. The message is not for Israel and and Judah alone, but for the whole world. It's for you, it's for me. Isaiah rebukes all nations for their unfaithfulness to God. And he also announces the surprising plan of God's amazing grace and glory for any sinner who comes to him by faith alone in Jesus Christ. Throughout his prophecy, we are introduced to God's grace time and time again. Central to this salvation is the sending of a Messiah, a serving king who will suffer for his people and be exalted in victory. He prophesied in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. God with us. In Isaiah 53, he prophesies in verses 4 and 5. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. In Isaiah 53, 12, Isaiah prophesies about his victory when he wrote, and he shall divide the spoil. Isaiah presents God in all his glory, worthy of all our trust, He is the redeemer who rescues um, from sin and restores all things to the praise of his glorious grace. Found in the person and work of Jesus Christ on the cross and on his finished work alone. Through Jesus' life, through Jesus' death, through Jesus' glorious resurrection, he has begun to fulfill in a decisive way the promises of Isaiah. We await the day when Jesus returns a second time to gather the redeemed to worship God in a new creation forever. 
Last Sunday, we looked at Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2. The Lord asked the question, where is the house that you will build me, and where is the place of my rest? I asked the question, what kind of place, what kind of worship space could we possibly be prepared that would honor and magnify God? God who is holy. God has never been satisfied with a building. A building built by human hands. He says to Israel in Isaiah 66, in the Isaiah 66 prophecy that was written over a hundred years before the destruction of the temple, I'm not looking for a building made by human hands. The Lord says in Isaiah 66, to be, but on this one will I look on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. The Lord is looking for a place to live. He, he's looking for a place to dwell and make his home, a place suitable to him, a place um, to rest, a place that feels like home, that is home, and that place is in a human heart, a humble heart, a broken heart, a reverent heart, and I'll add this week, a redeemed heart, redeemed by the blood of the lamb. the son of God, the sinless son of God, the perfect lamb sacrifice. The apostle Paul praying for the church in Ephesus, he writes in Ephesians 3.17, for this reason I bow my knees to the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ. Romans 5, 5 says, now hope does not disappoint. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts, where? In our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Paul writing to the church in Corinth, he asks in chapter 6, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own, for you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. In the Old Testament book of Ezekiel, the Lord says in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26, I will give you a new heart and I will put a a new spirit within you. Ezekiel 36, 27 says, I will put my spirit within you. God who is holy, but not just holy, he is holy, holy, holy. We, we, see, we see this beautiful picture of the holiness of God back in Isaiah chapter six, when Isaiah had this vision of the Lord sitting on his throne in glory in heaven. And these angelic beings were crying one to another, holy, holy, holy. And we see this beautiful picture once again in the very last book of the Bible in Revelation, surrounding the throne of God 
angelic beings crying out, holy, holy, holy. God is uniquely holy with no rivals or competition. He occupies a moral space that no one has ever occupied before. God's holiness is his defining characteristic. God is set apart, distinct from anything that has ever existed or will ever exist. God does not conform to a standard. He is the standard. He is who he is. He is holy. God who is holy makes his home in a human heart. Paul prayed, Ephesians 3, 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. To make his home in our hearts implies being settled in a specific place. The one who is holy calls every Christ follower to be holy. He looks for a human heart to make his home on this side of heaven. Incredible? It's a miracle of divine grace. Supernatural. Gracious Father in heaven, I pray over these next few moments through the power of your Holy Spirit. You would be glorified through the preaching of your word that the church would be strengthened, would be built up, would be encouraged in their precious faith and that that by the power of your spirit as your word goes forth, you would draw um, those here today who have yet um, experienced your redeeming grace, your saving grace. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please follow along as I read today's main scripture text, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 21. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lust as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, be holy, for I am holy." And if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Beautiful. I want to talk for the next couple of minutes on the response. The response, our response to the grace of salvation. The glorious, marvelous, Amazing grace of salvation. When Jesus said, to whom much is given, much is required. He gave a principle that certainly relates to 
to the Christian's response to salvation here in our main text this morning. Since no greater gift could ever be given than the gift of salvation in Christ, no gift then could ever demand a a greater response. The greatest gift carries with it the greatest obligation. The grace of salvation brings to us the greatest responsibility as followers of Christ, recipients of this amazing grace. In 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 3 through 9, salvation was was beautifully described by Peter. In those verses, Peter focused on the nature of salvation. And then coming into verse 10, he began to look at the greatness of salvation. Oh, great is this salvation that you and I have been graced with by the hand of a holy God. In today's main scripture text, The apostle Peter writes about the believer's response to the grace of salvation, what our response should look like. Number one, if you're taking notes on your outline, a new mindset. He writes in verse 13a, therefore gird up the loins of your mind. Christians have a new mindset. The word therefore, therefore at the beginning of verse 13 has always Um, as always, is a word of transition. It takes us from statement to application, from fact to determination. Since you have received salvation's grace, fact, how many have received salvation's grace here? Fact, be responsible with such great grace. And I want to stress, be responsible with such grace great grace. Be determined to be a good steward of the glorious grace of God. This command sounds strange. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Sounds strange, this command. In the first century, men wore long flowing robes with a belt around the middle of their waist. Whenever they got ready for hard work or to run a race or to go into battle, they would shorten up the robe by tucking it into the belt, which made it um, a whole lot easier for them to, to move around and to move fast and free, especially in athletic competition or in the midst of battle. That was called girding up the loins. The command is for every Christ follower to prepare their mind for action and the goal is holiness you see the road to holiness is paved with personal discipline that starts in the mind the command is to pull in the loose ends of our lives Hebrews chapter 12 verse 1 says let us lay aside every weight in the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us Church, gather up your earthly affections. Gather up your earthly affections that hinder you and tie them up so they won't get in the way of you serving the Lord. So they won't get in the way of me serving the Lord. In the Gospel of Luke chapter 12, verse 35, Jesus said, let your waist be girded and your lamps burning. Be dressed in readiness. Be dressed in readiness. Always be ready to give a reason of the hope 
that you have within you. Sloppy thinking results in sloppy Christian living. All our problems, if we're honest with ourselves, start between our ears. First we think, then we dwell on what we're thinking, and then we do it. I'm guilty. Maybe I'm alone here today. The Apostle Paul writes to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians 6.14. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth. The only way to gird up the loins of your mind is by using the belt of truth. In other words, secure it tight with God's word. Secure it tight with God's word. God's word is not just any other book. It's God's book. It's God's word to us. And I'm so grateful that God has spoken to us through his word. The the command is this. Prepare your mind to learn. Prepare your mind to think biblically. And church, that's critical in this day that we're living in. The command is to prepare to grow in grace. The command is this, pull everything in and make it captive to Christ. Don't be intoxicated with the world, but be filled with the word of God. Can I hear a big amen? The command is this, mean business with God. How many here mean business with God? Your walk exemplifies the reality of the fact that you mean business with God. Your faith means business with God. The grace that you have been given, that you are stewarding, means... I'm serious. I'm serious about this faith. I'm serious about this holy calling on my life. Next, he commands, be sober. Christians have a new focus. This command is to be free from anything that would cloud our moral and spiritual judgment, causing us to lower our standards and compromise our values. And that's a great temptation, has always been a great temptation. It's an increasing temptation, I truly believe, in this day that we're living in, especially um, in the body of Christ. All the pressures, all the noise. Don't let anything cloud your vision of God's holiness and his holy calling on your life to be holy. First Thessalonians 5, chapter 5, verse 6 says, Therefore let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. In verse 8, the Apostle Paul, he, he pens to the church in Thessalonica. In First Thessalonians 5, 8, But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love. And as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Faith, love, hope. In 1 Peter 4, 7, Peter writes, but the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and sober, watchful in your prayers. 
First Peter 5, 8 says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seek him who he may devour. The next, the next command we see is in 13, the third part of, of, of verse 13, 13c, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The command is an active imperative. We have a new hope. We have a new hope. It means that he is stating a direct, almost military command. Fix your hope. Live every moment with, with your mind captive. With your mind fixed on the grace that is to come. Anticipating the return of Christ. It calls for an act of the will more than just an emotional feeling. We don't always feel hopeful if we're honest with ourselves. We don't always feel hopeful. Life beats us up. We get weary. We don't always understand why things happen the way they do in our lives. The command has military overtones. Set your sights. Be tough-minded in these days that we're living in. We need to be tough-minded in Christ. Can I hear a big amen? Church, there's a past grace that has saved you. There's a present grace that sustains and sanctifies you. And there's a future grace. Church, there's more grace to come. There's more of God to come. That's hard to believe, but there is. Peter writes, rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought, future tense, to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, at the second coming of Jesus Christ. Hope relates to that which is yet to be fulfilled. Hebrews 11.1 says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Church, there's no hope apart from Christ and the promise of his second coming. Peter has in view here the second coming of Christ. I truly believe we're living in a time where we need to be drawing a lot more attention to the second coming of Christ. Hope, biblical hope, This hope that we have in this amazing grace of God is what helps us endure the sufferings and difficulties of this present life. You and I, we can endure when we know that the enduring has a purpose. It's leading us somewhere to a much better place. I share this often. There's a better tomorrow coming. There's a better tomorrow coming. The finality of that hope is yet future. Faith is believing God in the present, and hope is believing God for the future. Faith believes what God has said, what God has done, and hope believes what God has promised yet to do. In a sense, faith then is trusting God for the present and hope is trusting God 
for the future. Both are trusting God. To put it another way, faith accepts, hope expects. Amen, church? Faith appropriates what Jesus did for us on the cross and hope anticipates the second coming of Jesus Christ. And the grace that comes at his appearing. Faith believes God for what he has done and hope believes God for what he will do. We owe God our hope. Church, every Christ follower here today, we owe God our hope. This great and gracious God who saved us, this great and gracious God who by grace was generous to us beyond human description, who proved himself able to forgive our sins and offering his one and only son to provide the perfect sacrifice in Christ on the cross and then to raise him from the grave to redeem us. This God who saved us and totally transformed us, he he is worthy, church. He is worthy. We sang about his worthiness this morning. He is worthy of hope, of our confident trust in him for the future. He alone deserves our hope. This world doesn't deserve our hope. It's misplaced hope. He has been faithful in the past, church. And he is faithful in the present. And he'll be just as faithful in the future. And we are to live in the light of that future hope. What he promised, he will do. The apostle Peter has already introduced this wonderful truth. We are, it says in in verse 3 of 1 Peter 1, born again to a living hope. Hope should characterize our life. Those who have been born again, those who have been filled with the Spirit of God, those who are following Christ should be characterized with this hope. First Peter, we read, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Amen. Peter is calling us to hope. Not so much for how hope affects us, Not so much for what it does in our personal life. And it does a lot. Hope lifts us above the circumstances that debilitate so many people. But Peter is not calling us to hope because of what it does for us. That's not his point. That's not the point here in our text. He's calling us to hope because it glorifies God. Now, you might say, what do you mean by that, Pastor Pat? Well, when you truly trust God for the future, you are affirming by that trust that God is trustworthy, and that brings God glory. You are showing that God keeps his promises. 
that you believe his promises. You don't doubt his promises. You believe he keeps his word. How many people here this morning, you believe that God keeps his word? That faith keeps us in trying times. We owe him that allegiance. We should be loyal to him. When we really begin to just scratch the surface of this amazing grace, this living hope that we have, hope glorifies God. The God who has given us such a great salvation is worthy of our hope. Salvation phase one has appeared. The first coming of Christ. Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. The sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice that a holy God required was satisfied in the sacrifice of his son. Salvation phase one has appeared. Salvation phase two we still look for. It's called the second coming of Christ. Amen? Because we have received the great gift of grace, salvation, we have the responsibility as Christ followers to look ahead to the second coming of Christ and to live with that view. The object of the hope is right here in our main text. The grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When you first came to receive the salvation of your soul, you didn't deserve it. I didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it, church. You and I had no right to it. We weren't worthy of it. It was purely a gift of grace. A gift of grace. In precious church family, it won't be any different at his second coming. It will be unmerited blessing at the second coming of Christ as it was when we first were saved. It will be undeserved kindness as it was when we uh, <clears throat> first heard the gospel and responded by faith to the gospel. Think of it. We will no more deserve the redemption of these sinful bodies that are so polluted um, by iniquity, a fallen world, than we deserve the redemption of our polluted souls when we gave ourselves by faith to Christ. Grace, church. Grace. Amazing grace. We will no more deserve our home in heaven than we deserve our place in the body of Christ, the church Jesus is building. Church, it's grace. It's grace. Oh, that we would have a, a revelation of how sinful we were and, and, and what that sin, how God could not look upon that sin or be in fellowship with that sin, be in relationship with the sin that wants to find us. Oh, the grace of God, the grace of God, the grace of God, the grace of God covers that sin. That's the good news of the New Testament, of the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And when we begin to even scratch the surface in understanding, it changes everything about our life. I mean everything. We will no more deserve sinless perfection 
of body and soul forever, then we deserve forgiveness of sin in this body and soul now. It's all grace, church. Grace. Grace at his first coming and grace at his second coming. We will no more deserve unhindered, unbroken, sweet, intimate communion with the living Lord then we deserve to be able to pray to him now and commune with him now. Grace, church. Grace then, grace now. Amen? And grace at his coming. It is grace. and It will always, always be grace. No man can save himself. No man can keep himself saved. The Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14 say, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope in glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The finality of grace, church, is on its way. Peter says, fix your hope on the future grace yet to come. Rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Next, he writes in verse 14, as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance. Christians have a new lifestyle. The assumption is that in Christ, we are obedient children. In Christ, we are obedient children. Literally, this is a beautiful statement in the Greek. It actually... Um, is translated as children of obedience. In Christ, being born again with this living hope, as children of obedience. Obedience is not an adjective to modify children's behavior. Church, we are by virtue of our new birth, God's obedient children. Why? Because we have a new nature. We have taken on God's nature. It's divine. It's supernatural. It's a work of grace. As his obedient children, Peter writes, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. In other words, don't slip back into your old ways of life. The life you once lived when you had no knowledge of God's truth. Don't slip back. The life you lived in ignorance. Void of God's truth. Don't slip back. Don't act like the godless heathen who doesn't know God. You know, it's quite concerning in the Christian church today there's a lot of believers, or they wear, the, they wear the name Christian. Jesus said not everyone that says, Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Their lives speak for themselves. They're conformed to the passions of their former lust before they knew the truth of God's word. Before they knew any better. The reality is now they know the truth and they know better, so they willfully rebel. They willfully disobey and choose lifestyles that are so displeasing to the Lord. The word conform means to form or mold after something. I truly believe that the most powerful entity in the world today is the church that Jesus is building. It's filled with the presence and power of God. We have to ask ourselves and have some critical thinking. We have more mega churches today in America than we've ever had before in our history. And our cities are getting darker and not lighter. The word conform means to form or mold after something. The only other use of the word is in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Paul writes, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. I'm having more and more conversations with people who call themselves Christian, but they're conforming to the world. And Paul says, and do not be conformed to this world, but they're conforming to the world. Their worldview is not based on the absolute truth of God's word, but on the wisdom of men, human intellect. And they're conforming. And they're looking more and more like the world. And be careful when the church has to do ministry, when the church has to look like the world to reach the world, there's a problem. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God, that you may be able to Prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Church, by not allowing yourself to be molded according to the scheme of your former lusts, which um, were a part of your unredeemed ignorance, you make a break with the past. That means you make a break from the sins of your past that once controlled you, that once lorded over you, that once controlled you. In church, we have to war. We have to fight. Not to gain victory, but we war and we fight from a position of victory, a victory that was won over 2,000 years ago on the cross. Amen, church? Again, by not allowing yourself to be molded according to the scheme of your former lust which were a part of your unredeemed ignorance, you make a break with the past. That means you make a break 
from the addictions and the sins of the past that once ruled and controlled and was just ripping your life apart. I was in a conversation a couple of weeks ago and the question was asked me and these are unbelievers I was in a meeting regarding the startup of Teen Challenge here in Rochester and the question was asked Pastor, isn't it true once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic? And then someone else that was at sitting at that conference table said, yes, that's exactly, you're absolutely right. This is what the medical profession says. And I looked at the person and I said, and you're absolutely right. That is what the medical profession says. But this is not what we're gonna teach the students in the program. The Bible says this, that in Christ you're a new creation. All the old things pass away and behold, all things become new. Not some things, all things become new. And I went on and I shared with them that how this happens, it's supernatural. It's divine in nature through the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then I brought out the curriculum that we're going to use for 12 months discipling these students to live a life um, in Christ. And I put this material on the conference table and I began just to walk them through some of the different topics, some of the different Bible studies. And I shared shared with these individuals that the truths from God's word that we're going to be teaching them, we're going, to, we're going to encourage them and teach them how to apply them to their life. It's that truth, God's truth, that's going to bring them to a place of, 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 of living life free from addiction. It's the power of the gospel and it's the word of truth applied to their hearts that will give them the grace and strength 24-7 to live a life free from addiction. Church, I'm just going to be honest with you, as I always am. I have a lot brewing in my heart. I always have a burden or two. Now, someone recently told me, Pastor, you shouldn't have a burden. The burden is the Lord's. But then I wrestle with Galatians 6.1, bear one another's burdens. And when I begin to study that text in the Greek language, it says, carry someone's burden. Make it your own. Isn't that what Jesus did for us? He carried our burden. He made our burden his own and he bore it on the cross and I'm so grateful that he did. I got burdens. We all have burdens. I'm burdened for the people of God. I'm burdened for lost people who are demonically deceived. I'm burdened, I'm burdened, I'm burdened, I'm burdened. God desires that none would perish, but all would come to repentance. We can't be passive. We can't be sleeping. It's high time to awake out of sleep, the word of God tells us. For now our salvation is much nearer than when we first believed. But we're not living with the second coming of Christ in our view. Lord, help us. Lord, help us. I shared with those officials that what we're going to do there, it's not a rehabilitation home. It's a discipleship home. 
It's not a place where lives are going to be rehabilitated. It's a place where lives are going to be transformed by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For it is the power of salvation, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. This leads perfectly into our next point on today's outline. As his obedient children, Peter instructs us on on what we're not to do. Do not be driven by past loss and then he tells us what we are to do and the reason why look at verse 15 but as he who called you is holy you also be holy in all your conduct Christians have a new standard he says don't do this don't conform to former lust as in your ignorance I don't think anyone here can claim ignorance we know the truth If we obey, or if we disobey, I should say, we do it not being ignorant of God's truth. We do it knowing his truth, but choosing to disobey and to rebel against God. And then he says, do this, be holy in all your conduct, all your conduct. And then in verse 16, he says, why? Because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. That's why. Holiness is God's calling for every believer. Have you ever struggled with God's calling on your life? Have you ever wondered what God's calling is for your life? We think so much of God's calling in what we're going to do for him. But have you ever really thought about God's calling on your life? In fact, we all have the same calling from God on our life. It's right here. Be holy for I am holy. This is the calling of God. We are to be like the one who has called us, the one who birthed us in Christ. No amens. God is holy. It's who he is. He is holy. God is holy in every attribute and action. Church, when we're born again, we have God's nature. He lives in us. Blows me away. I can't wrap my brain around it. But I believe by faith. The Bible says with every temptation, there's a way of escape. Who provides that way of escape? God does. That tells me I don't have to succumb. Because in his grace, he provides a way out. He provides a way out. And sometimes he provides 25 way outs. Because we're too stubborn with the one way out. But we choose, don't we? To go back to the old man, the old nature. We like to dig up the grave and raise him up. And we sin. We all do it. I'm so grateful. When Paul said where sin abounds, grace abounds so much more. 
I'm so grateful that his mercies are new every morning. God is holy in every attribute and action. God's justice is a holy justice. God's will is for us to be holy. Be holy for I am holy, the Lord says. God's justice is a holy justice. The justice that we give others is to be holy. God's love is a holy love. The love you and I share with others is to be holy. God's mercy is a holy mercy, and the mercy we extend to others is to be a a holy mercy. God's anger is a holy anger. The anger we express oftentimes those who are closest to us is to be a holy anger. God's grace is a holy grace. The grace we give is to be a holy grace. God's compassion is a holy compassion. The compassion we demonstrate toward others is to be a holy compassion. God's conversation is holy conversation. Can you just imagine with me? Here he is in his throne. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Their conversations, holy conversation. It's not unholy. This is the will of the Father, that you would be holy as he is holy. Our conversation is to be holy conversation. Void of gossip, void of slander. Void of deceit. I'm so grateful with sin abounds, grace abounds so much more. In the Greek, it superabounds. You can't outsin God's grace. I'm so grateful. But Paul says, hey, does that mean you go on sinning? What's the answer? Absolutely not. Because when you truly follow Christ, every time you sin, you give in to that battle, you hate it. And you hate it a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. Because you know it's a great offense to the one who loves you. Until we hate what God hates, we will never be free. Church, God is uniquely holy. I can go on. God is uniquely holy. And Christians... Those who follow Christ should live uniquely different than the rest of the world. Jesus says we're going to be hated as he was hated. 
as his second coming draws closer, but we won't be hated if we just look like everybody else and act like everybody else, do what everybody else does. You know, the ungodly heathen who's ignorant of the truth. And church, I love you. Boy, lately I've had a few conversations and, I, and I've, I've started with this Proverbs, a wound from a friend is much better than a kiss from an enemy. And then I proceed by saying, I'm about to wound you. <laughs> but it's truth, God's truth. And God's truth does hurt, especially when it confronts our flesh, our pride, our rebellion. I've had a few of those conversations this week. A wound from a friend is much better than a kiss from an enemy. Some of those folks are here today and I know they don't mind me sharing. I shared full of grace and mercy and love and great care. Jude, he says, snatch him out of the fire. There's nothing passive about snatching someone out of the fire. The lion's den. You are a chosen generation. A royal priesthood. This is being written not just to Jews, but to Gentiles. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, a peculiar people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Three things as I close here this morning. Live a life of hope. Live a life of hope. We are the people of God. And there's a coming grace that's going to be lavished on us at the revelation of Jesus Christ at his second coming. Live a life of holiness. Why? Because it's the will of God. It's the call of God. Why? Because God said, be holy, for I am holy. End of the conversation. And number three, live a life of reverent fear. And that's missing today. The fear of God is missing today. I don't have time to dive into that today, but I will at a later time. But this reverent fear of a holy God is a beautiful, beautiful fear. Not one to be afraid of and one and hide from. Would you join me standing today? I pray and trust that the Lord's been glorified, that your faith is built up, edified, and strengthened. And if there's someone here today that doesn't know Christ and by faith has not received the gift of of God's grace and the forgiveness that is found in his grace and his grace alone and the gift of eternal life. I pray today that you by faith would call on the mighty name of Jesus. He's able to save you. Let's sing this song together.